Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. You, the viewer, are in charge of tonight's program. It's one of our most popular topics, Ask the Prairie Docs. Tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season. Hello, I'm Dr. Deb Johnston, one of the Prairie Docs. I am delighted to be here as the host for tonight's On Call with the Prairie Doc program as we celebrate 20 seasons of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. Joining me in the studio on the campus of South Dakota State University are Dr. Kelly Evans-Hellinger and Dr. Andrew Ellsworth. Dr. Jill Cruz was planning to be with us too, but instead she's waiting for the result of her COVID test. I can say with confidence we are all grateful she decided not to risk exposing us. Thanks, Jill. <laughs> Welcome. Um, I think we're all familiar to the Prairie Dock viewers, but uh, you know, it's always nice to do another little introduction. Kelly, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, so um, I am a general internist, an internal medicine physician here in Brookings. I was born and raised in Brookings, and here I am back. Um, I have been in practice here for almost six years now, so I feel like I'm not quite the new physician anymore. There's a handful <laughs> younger than me. Um, I don't know if you ever feel like you could totally grow out of that. Um, but yeah, I'm, I've, uh, I guest hosted and guested with Dr. Holm when he was here um, a couple of times and kind of got roped into Prairie Doc and have really enjoyed being part of the team. Fabulous. Mm -hmm. You know, you say you don't know if you ever quite grow out of being the new person. Mm -hmm. I still feel like I should be one of the new people, and there's only one person at the clinic who's been there longer than me, so I'm not quite sure how that happened, but yes, I understand that feeling. Andrew, how about you? Uh, I've been in Brookings at the clinic for almost 10 years now, and uh, um, you know, it wasn't long before Rick Dr. Holm was asking me to be on the show too, and so I was on the show. I was just thinking the last time I was a guest on the show was probably one of his times being the host. Um, but uh, it was, uh, it's been, we've, my wife and I, we've loved Brookings. Um, we're both from this area, She's from Southwest Minnesota. I'm from Madison, South Dakota. And uh, uh, it's been nice being around family and raising our children here in Brookings. And uh, um, it's, it's nice to be here again. It's great to have the Prairie Doc team together. Jill, we miss you, yes. but uh, it's, it's great to have us together. So we look forward to answering your questions about any medical topic you'd like. You've got three primary care docs here. We're ready to field it all. You never know what we're gonna field in the exam room. <laughs> Sometimes we say, gee, I don't know, <laughs> but we'll give it a try. Call us at one 888 376-6225. Send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. 
and to encourage your questions, those of you who ask a question during the first 20 minutes of tonight's program will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but be sure to provide your name and contact information when you submit your questions so we can contact the winner. And we actually had some questions come in even before the show, so that's fabulous. We've got some right. seeds to get things started here. <laughs> we have someone from Volga who says that their teen blasts music in his earbuds. Will this damage his hearing? And do you have any suggestions on changing the habit? I'm going to turf that one to you, Andrew. Yeah, you know, I don't think this is a new problem. I think earbuds may be, but <laughs> teenagers listening to loud music obviously isn't a new problem. And, and, and music that their parents don't like. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not a big stereo up against <laughs> like on their shoulder. Job, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, so, you know, whether you're mowing the lawn or listening to loud music or at a concert or firing a gun, yeah, it can damage your hearing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's hard to tell a teenager, explain to them this, but I guess you just explain it and tell them. And, and uh, you know, the, I don't think the earbud itself is a problem as far as that goes, because you can obviously adjust the volume. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I would encourage them to turn the volume down or it could hurt their hearing. Absolutely. That's a very common cause of long-term hearing damage and hearing loss is that loud noise exposure. So it is potentially a problem and potentially not, depending on exactly how loud they have it. <laughs> we have another question um, f from someone from Iowa. What can you tell us about Raynaud's disease and arthritis? Are they related or can one cause the other? Kelly, I'm gonna throw that one sure. to you. So uh, Raynaud's phenomenon or Raynaud's disease is a phenomenon we see commonly in January in South Dakota, <laughs> right? So usually it's a reaction to cold and you might know someone who walks out into the cold and their fingers turn purple and cold and it takes a while for them to warm up and kind of return to normal color. Um, it's Raynaud's itself is common and not always associated with any arthritis. I think what the viewer is probably asking specifically is about autoimmune arthritis and disease associated mm -hmm. with Raynaud's. There wouldn't be necessarily any connection between Raynaud's disease and your typical wear and tear osteoarthritis, which is the most common kind of arthritis. Um, and like I said, Raynaud's can occur independently. It, it, it does occur in higher rates with some autoimmune um, arthritis and diseases. So people with rheumatoid arthritis might be at higher risk of having both things or some other autoimmune diseases. So there's a connection. It's not causal. One doesn't necessarily cause the other, but they both can have to do with immune phenomena. So people who have one might be at higher risk of having the other the thing. Other. Yeah. yeah. The Raynaud's is very common. We yeah. frequently see it in the exam room when mm -hmm. people take their shoes off or with their hands and mm -hmm. yeah. Especially so. when it's so cold outside. Especially yes. when it's so cold and sometimes it's so cold inside too, depending yeah. on how well the heating is working. <laughs> so. And the vast majority of people don't need any medicine for this. That's unusual to have to prescribe medicine for Raynaud's. It's just wear those warm mittens and gloves when you go out in Layers. the cold. Yep. Yep. But there are medicines mm -hmm. that can help for individuals yeah. who have that so mm -hmm. 
Uh, here's a good one. What are the pros and cons or the risks of having a colonoscopy after age 75? Andrew, do you, you do colonoscopies. This is a great question for you. So the, the, the pros would be true for any age. You could uh, uh, find cancer before it's cancer. You could find a polyp and take it out and and a quick easy snip and it's and it's gone and now it's not going to grow into a cancer one of the most successful cancer screenings that's in pap smears because we're catching that early before when it's pre-cancerous before it can grow into a cancer you're not just can't catching cancer early it's before it's cancer it's prevention prevention yeah um, and, uh, and, 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 and cons can be um, if there's a risk of uh, you know if there's a complication um, if um, you have to do the prep, that's a, that's a con. Sometimes having to go to the bathroom a lot, maybe if it makes you feel sick, um, or if you get dehydrated. Mm -hmm. So it's important to really push the fluids when you're doing the prep. Um, and there could be a risk of a complication from the anesthesia, although it's pretty low risk because it's just a matter of an IV medicine helping you go to sleep. Mm -hmm. So You're still breathing for yourself during correct. the colonoscopy. It's just you're heavily sedated. Right, mm -hmm. um, like you're sleeping. Mm -hmm. um, the, the biggest risk with a colonoscopy is a perforation or tear, and thankfully that is quite low, but it can happen. Um, but when they look at the whole population, they found that we, we want to recommend these for everyone because the risks uh, are far outweighed by the benefits of mm -hmm. catching this common cancer early and, and helping to prevent it. Uh, now, as you get older, those risks can increase. Um, and so usually 75 is not so much uh, a target to stop. Um, some consider 80. Um, it depends on how you're doing. You know, if you're living independently without too many risk factors, um, there's been plenty of studies that show maybe continuing on to 82, 83, 85, or, or what is okay. Um, just, you know, weighing that with your doctor and talking about it. I think, you know, it really depends on the individual really how, how long mm -hmm. I'll keep kind of pushing those colonoscopies yeah. or mammograms or any other yeah. kind of mm -hmm. screening. If you've got bad heart disease and your life expectancy is short, mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily make yeah. sense to do something invasive to catch something before it might kill you 10 years from now. Exactly. Yeah. So. Now, the situation might be different if you are bleeding, mm -hmm. if you have blood yes, in your stool, right. and so on. And then now the reason to do it is increased. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now it's not a screening colonoscopy. It's right. a diagnostic. We've got to figure out what's wrong. Right. Procedure. And I've had people well into their 80s then get a colonoscopy and get it taken care of, and then they're able to carry on yep. whereas if we had decided oh you're 80 we don't want to do anything who knows what would have happened yep. they could have had terrible cancer that was very painful and instead we got it taken care of yeah mm -hmm. that's all a case-by-case -case situation yeah, yeah. <clears throat> we have a woman from Rapid City who had cancer in both of her lungs and part of her left lung was removed. Then she had to drive to the heart hospital in Sioux Falls, but when part of her right lung was removed, she was able to have it done in Rapid City. Why? Ooh, I don't think I'm gonna be able to answer that one. Um, it, it, 
it may have had to do with several factors. I don't know how much time passed between these things. You know, that's that would be a procedure that we don't have a lot of surgeons in our state who are doing lung or low bar resections. That's a small number of people, so it may have been dependent on who was present to, to do those things. Um, it may have been related to other risks that she had that could have been cardiac or other. Hard for me to say, Deb. Or the exact anatomy right. of, of the cancer and what all was involved. Yeah. If you think back to Dr. Holm, he was originally gonna have, and I don't think this is a secret at he was originally going to have his surgery here in Sioux Falls mm -hmm. and then the surgeon who was going to do it said you know when I look really closely at those images it's just in a, a location that we need to get somebody else to do this mm -hmm. so uh, and that may very well have been what was going on there. Yeah. So and a different surgeon know. may have decided to do it still yep. then. Right. So it yep. can it, just kind of depend on the who's individual's on call experience or who your and, doctor is and yep. how they their comfort and, level. And what their support is. Right. Mm -hmm. What else is available right. at the hospital at the time. But I hope she's doing well. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a lot to go through. It is a lot to go mm -hmm. through. And when I was in medical school a million years ago, she wouldn't be here to ask the question now. That's the, so just a, a real reflection of how much more we can do now mm -hmm. and the importance of that screening. Well, in our current situation, it depends on, on the reality of how many beds are available for a procedure. Ab too. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> if there are sadly. any beds at all. Mm -hmm. A 70-year-old woman in Eagle Butte has a history of diabetes in her family and is wondering it if she can still get it at her age. Can you still get diabetes at 70, Kelly? You bet. All the, we see it all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you can get diabetes at any age. We diagnose it, um, you know, in people's 90s sometimes. Um, the sometimes the how aggressive we are with treatment age matters a little bit. It's not unlike the conversation we just had about cancer screening. The older you are, the less theoretical time you have for diabetes to damage your end organs. And so sometimes that risk of causing low blood sugar starts mm -hmm. to outweigh the benefits of aggressive treatment. But the answer is yes. So she should con continue to do at least annual glucose screening or whatever it is that her doctor is recommending for watching sure. blood sugars. Diabetes gets more common as you get older. Yep. It's a disease that you develop with time. Yep. Type 2 type diabetes, two. obviously. Yes, exactly. Type 1 diabetes is a little different, but type 2 is the one that we see mm -hmm. almost all the time. So, um, All right, here's one that I am not going to be able to answer, but I'll throw this out and see if either <laughs> one of you can answer this. Noonan syndrome. Can it affect one's personality or present as a psycholo with psychological symptoms? I'm seeing a lot of hmm. probably, but I, that's one where I'd, I'd pull up I my don't references. Know, absolutely, mm -hmm. I don't know enough about it to mm -hmm. be able to to say with any degree of confidence. Yeah, it, as someone who sees adults only, and it's not it's something that I see. Yeah, it's a congenital thing yep. you're born with. But yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So. That would be one we'd have to research. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> As primary care doctors, we get pretty good at saying, I don't know the answer to that. Let's see what we let's, can find let's out. Together. That's yep. right. Uh, here's uh, someone from Brookings who says, Should I treat a planter's wart that doesn't hurt? Andrew. You know, I'm, it might depend on the situation, but um, you don't have to. Mm -hmm. But if you don't, um, it could keep getting 
bigger and be harder to treat, but it's also possible you don't treat it and it, your body might finally target it and help get rid of it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's no perfect wart treatment. Mm -hmm. um, e essentially, most of them were kind of either targeting that spot and calling the body's attention to that spot, mm -hmm. you know, causing a little irritation or inflammation, and then the body's like, what's going on here? I'm like, oh, and then helps get rid of it. But, uh, you know, so those over-the-counter free stuff is worth a try, salicylic acid or compound mm -hmm. W. I like for a plantar ward on the foot, I like doing a week of, uh, recommending doing a week of salicylic acid at night and leave it on, and then leaving duct tape on for a week. Duct tape. Mm -hmm. uh, and then switching every, every week. I, I found that to be helpful for some, some patients. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that I always try to remind people to do with treating any kind of wart with over-the-counter is you've got to scrape off that dead top layer yeah, between you know, applications. Penetrate deeper and, yep. and persistence And persistence, yeah. yep. Yep. If you treat it once and then six months later, oh, it's back to the same size again. Yep. So. Yeah. A plantar's word on your foot is more likely than in another location to eventually cause symptoms. I mean, they can be painful if you yep. develop a big callus there. Um, I tell people, you know, depending on where it is and if it doesn't bother you, if you have a healthy immune system, probably your body will get rid of that wart, but it's going to be two or three years like it yeah. might it might be there for a couple of years but most people eventually do they self-resolve um so it depends how much it bothers this person yep yeah yeah i wouldn't mm -hmm. be in a hurry to nah. do anything if it didn't bother them mm -hmm. you can do it when it does when pat breidenbach's voice started becoming raspy about 20 years ago she thought molds or other allergens from her basement office might be the cause it turned out to be spasmodic dysphonia, a rare neurologic disorder that causes involuntary spasms in the muscles of her voice box. Prairie Doc producer Ginger Thompson shares this Mitchell woman's story. One of Pat Breidenbach's true joys was singing in choirs. Sadly, that pastime ended when her voice became constantly strained and hoarse, as if she had a bad cold. It's been a real difficult journey at times. For one thing, when people uh, hear me talk, uh, many times they think I have a sore throat, that I have a cold, especially when I'm talking on the telephone with people. Uh, they might say, oh, you must have a terrible cold. And I'll say, I wish I did, I could get rid of that. And then I try to explain this. The symptoms are really that vocal tremor where um, it kind of has this, like almost you're almost you're breathing in between your words. It's hard for me to, to pantomime that one. Um, uh, but it usually, instead of seeing a nice E, it's E, kind of almost a vibrato, I guess. Um, and with spa true spasmodic dysphonia, it'll do that even if you're doing like whispering. If you're going it'll also go because those, they're always kind of, fighting when you're trying to act like you're talking. It's kind of task specific. So if you're not talking, if you're not making noises that you're trying to communicate with, you actually don't have as much of that dysphonia. Scientists aren't sure what causes spasmodic dysphonia, but they believe it's neurological and may have a genetic link. And so it came to be that they found the uh, gene marker on chromosome nine that causes this tremor. 
So when I learned that, I asked my mother what she knew about family members whose voices uh, gave them problems. And she said, I don't know anything. Uh, but she said, I think your grandfather, my, my dad, I think in his later years, he had kind of the same type of voice and they just didn't, they just thought it was because he was old, I guess. There is no cure for the chronic lifelong condition, but there are some treatment options. And for spasmodic dysphonia, sometimes we use artane um, or uh, clonopin, clonazepam sometimes, um, to help with those extra muscle spasms. Um, now, all those medications have kind of, you know, some systemic effects. They can sometimes make people tired, sometimes make people a little foggy headed, lower your blood pressure, um, but they're usually pretty well tolerated. Pat and her husband, George, are world travelers, and that provides an opportunity to educate others about this condition. But that's been another opportunity to uh, visit with people around the world about this, you know, because when we're trying to visit and I can tell they're, you know, wondering why they can't hear me or understand me real well. That's kind of an open door for me to, to tell them my story. What a great story. How, how neat to hear her story and see what she's doing to educate people. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a testament to sometimes people, even if there's not a real effective treatment to offer an answer as to what's causing people's Suffering. symptoms, yeah. can be helpful Absolutely. emotionally. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, um, this is a pretty seasonal question. A viewer wants to know when can my baby get a flu shot? How old does my baby have to be? Six months old. Six months and old. that first, uh, those early years, or the first time you get a flu shot, we recommend getting two, at least one month apart. And then for subsequently years, just one. just one. You know, in general, I'd recommend getting it in, you know, September, October. Um, it's not too late now, or as soon as you turn six months, it's not too late now, but we are in the heart of a earlier influenza uh, peak than we have, well, of course, we didn't have hardly any cases last year. Typically, it's in the second or third week of February in South Dakota, but there's times where it's an earlier wave and there's times where we have two waves. Mm -hmm. And given what RSV did this year with this, a few different waves, when it's normally just in the, these uh, winter months, I, and without many cases of influenza last year, I wouldn't be surprised if we have an influenza A wave now and maybe an influenza B wave later or something. And then a different strain of influenza A yeah, hitting after exactly. that. Could yeah, exactly. Could be. Absolutely. So, you know, one thing I'd like to interject that, that you know, there's some, some people getting uh, influenza cases now that had gotten a flu shot, and that can happen, but it can really decrease your risk of a severe case mm -hmm. of influenza. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, getting a flu shot every year gives you added protection as mm -hmm. well. So even if they didn't match up the current year's flu shot great with what's circulating, circulating um, some of those past flu shots that you've gotten can help. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that's that's true every year. You know, mm -hmm. every year it's a guessing game for the people who decide what strains to put in. What strains are we going to see this year? And some years they guess really well, and other years. 
They don't, and this year they had they were just guessing blind. Right. From my perspective. It, it, it <laughs> takes a while for them to grow those compounds and mature them with an egg, yep. you know, and everything, and inject those virus particles so that your body can build the natural immunity mm -hmm. antibodies to it. Now, might they come up with mRNA vaccines for influenza and match them a lot better to the current year's strain? That could happen. They won't have to guess quite so far ahead right. if we're able to do right. that. That's an exciting possibility. It is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, and while we're talking about mRNA, we have some COVID questions that came in here. Here's a caller from Hot Springs who says that they had COVID about a year ago, and since then their kidneys have gotten worse, and the heartbeat has slowed, and the blood pressure is up, and they're currently on medicine for it. They're feeling fine, but could COVID have had anything to do with these new symptoms, Kelly? Yes, maybe. I think we still, there's still a lot of unanswered questions about late effects of COVID-19. And we know, we know, you know, we've always seen people who have had subsequent to viral infection or subsequent mm -hmm. to any infection, kind of longer lasting symptoms, chronic fatigue, and some of those things that are vague and we don't necessarily point to what the infection is. but. I think COVID will be unique just because we had such a large number of people infected in such a short period of time historically that we we probably will know more years down the road, but there's a lot of research going on right now. Yeah. It's possible. It's possible it was a coincidence and you yeah. might have had new onset hypertension this year, whether or not you had COVID, but it's certainly possible that your illness might have affected yourself. And, and certainly we see these all of these things happening acutely when people have mm -hmm. COVID. They yeah. end up in the hospital, they end up on dialysis because their kidneys fail, their heart mm -hmm. is damaged. We see a lot of that. So yeah. it is it is very possible, but not necessarily for the individual without knowing more so about the picture. Some have described it as a vascular disease. Now that's not entirely explain it but spread and spread through the respiratory system mm -hmm. and thus you can see it affect all these different organs because and and increase your risk of clots and mm -hmm. you know so could there be little micro clots or affecting different organs in different different ways it's hard to say but you know it, even before covid if someone was in the hospital or sick with something sometimes later than they mm -hmm. would notice. Their kidneys would be stressed. Multiple. Critical illness, yeah. certainly those yeah. people end up with long. I would take that as a plug to just remind people, even, the, even in the age of when we're seeing a lot of mild illness and a lot of cases, mm -hmm. All of these unanswered questions are a very good reason for me to still do everything that I can to avoid getting sick because there are a lot of people who feel worse than they did before infection a year yeah. later and more. Even though they didn't feel that bad yeah. when right. they were sick in the first right. place. And I always think back to polio mm -hmm. um, because a lot of people got polio, seemed to have recovered, and now later in their adulthood are really suffering the effects of post-polio syndrome mm -hmm. with yeah. muscle weakness and yeah. um, it, it can be very disabling. Or you think about the shingles virus or yeah, chicken, chicken pox, pox virus. And, chicken, and then years later, six decades later, having mm -hmm. shingles, a painful rash. That won't go, and the pain that won't go away. Won't go away. Mm -hmm. But yep. I don't think we, you know, there's a lot of anxiety out there too. Mm -hmm. And we don't need to be worrying about 
this either. You know, uh. we want to be cautious and responsible. <laughs> says, Say, says, says the guy at the table who's had it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thankfully, I had a very mild case mm -hmm. er earlier on. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, And had to do uh, your, your interview remotely yeah. from home. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it's... We should be cautious and and do everything we can, but um, and do everything we can protect the people around us yes. too, who may not have a mild case. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, but thankfully, there's majority of people seem to have a mild reaction, especially if they have lower risk factors to COVID, and especially if they're vaccinated. Especially yeah. if they're vaccinated, yes. and thank goodness for that. Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, we have another COVID question here, someone from Yankton, uh, wondering if we've read any literature about people developing, specifically young children, but it not necessarily limited, developing type 1 diabetes after COVID. I think that goes back to the yeah. other comment. I I, have it's it. possible, mm -hmm. but I, not that we've seen I, or known. I have sure. read a little. Mm -hmm. But nothing, nothing real definitive. Just kind of one of those. There have oh, always hey, there been might theories be a... about autoimmune disease, that type one diabetes being one of them, yep. having possibility of viral, of a viral, viral trigger. or mm -hmm. infectious triggers. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, here we have a woman from Sioux Falls. This is not a COVID question, but there are more of those here too. <laughs> Wondering what the best treatment for pain in both sides and the back of the ribs. I think it depends, it depends on where, what's causing what, it. Yeah. 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 You just got to um, see your doctor and, and, and start exploring possible possibilities. Causes. Yeah. You know, if so. we're talking about your back, um, you know, that's a very common spot thing mm -hmm. as far as yep. both sides because it was the back and or what the back was it? and and the yeah. uh, the ribs mm -hmm. in yeah. both sides and the back of the ribs so it I would be suspicious about a back problem but the bottom line is go see your doctor yeah. so. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna go to another roll in here pretty quick, but let's do one more. A woman from Rapid City had a toenail removed about a year ago due to a fungus, but there is still some of the toenail left. Should she go back to the doctor? Andrew, you remove toenails. Do you remove toenails? No, ma'am. No, me either. <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, we, we, have a, we have a podiatrist in our clinic now, so thankfully they can do a majority of them. But I, I do like a procedure. But um, it, it can be very helpful for some people to have that removed, you know, especially if it was really causing ingrown problems and If it's and giving such. you trouble, go back. Um, but exactly. Yep. Yeah. If it's not bothering you, it's okay. Yeah. Absolutely. If it doesn't hurt, don't fix it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we now know that the Omicron variant of COVID spreads very quickly and is more contagious than the Delta variant. This is causing tremendous strain on our healthcare system, resulting in prioritizing which patients are the sickest. Dr. David Bassel, Vice President for Clinical Quality with Avera Medical Group, provided this update. So we've been essentially full or near capacity for, uh, you know, a month or two right now, which means, you know, if we have a new COVID patient come in, we have nowhere to put them until we discharge a, a different patient. And that's pretty much across all of our hospitals. And it's really most significant in our sickest patients. So ICU beds are the tightest crunch, followed by, you know, our medical floor where COVID type of patients 
generally are cared for. And so once you, we discharge a patient, there's usually two or three patients at other facilities or in e emergency departments that we're trying to prioritize to see which one of those is the sickest that needs to come into the hospital first. And at other times, we'll be taking patients that are getting better and we'll transfer them to a different hospital so we can get the sicker patient into, say, that ICU bed. And so we're doing a lot of, of trying to level out the load across all of our hospitals across the state and across the system as best we can to care for everybody just as quickly and in the best and the most appropriate place that we can. The bottom line is we we learned last year that uh, we can we can surge up quite quite a bit. We're at about you know half the number of COVID patients in house that we were at uh, last November of of twenty one of twenty. Now, at that time, when we were sitting at uh, a high number of COVID patients, we had almost nothing else in the hospital. This year, we're seeing influenza cases start to rise, and so that adds into the mix. And we also, there's only so long length of time that you can't do a lot of these other types of procedures. People need their heart bypasses. People need their cancer surgeries to remove their cancer. You just can't keep putting those things off like we did, you know, initially when we thought this was going to be a one or two month thing, we could push things off a little bit. Now that we're going into two years, you just can't keep pushing those things back. And so in the short term, we can surge up a little bit further than we are now, but you just can't, that's not sustainable. It's not sustainable for the staff. It's not sustainable for supplies. Um, and so in the short term is a little bit different than what we can do in the long term. One thing we definitely know about COVID, if you're sick enough to get in the ICU, one, you've got probably a greater than 50% chance that you're going to die. But if you are going to survive, it's going to take literally weeks and you're going to be in that ICU bed for a long time. And so they don't open up very frequently. And so, yeah, it's, it's a real struggle uh, right now to be able, especially in those more critically ill patients. I think we'll learn a lot more here in the next couple of of weeks as we see what is the hospitalization rate going to be? How quickly are those hospital cases going to go up? And the hopeful news is that as quick as this is coming on, it may not last, you know, months and months. This may be, you know, we may see a terrible January and early February and things may start getting better. So we just need to hold on. COVID is such a timely topic. We're just seeing so much of it in the clinic and in the mm -hmm. hospitals, and it's worrying your doctors, people. <laughs> and we have another COVID question. Right. Um, I think this is going to be an Andrew and I question. Uh, a woman's niece got pregnant, and the niece believes in fasting. She's vegan, and she didn't get the COVID vaccine. She got COVID, and she had a miscarriage. Could it be related to her behaviors? You know, it, it is, um, a, 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 miscarriages are quite common, um, and, it, and it's not talked about enough, um, the, the quiet suffering that some women go through. Some families. Some families go through, through mm -hmm. some, you know, and. Then and the male right. partner, the father can Thank suffer you. every bit as much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, 
um, it it can I I, it, well, I can't remember offhand. It was like at least thirty percent of, of pregnancies end in a miscarriage. So it, and sometimes before you even know you're pregnant, mm -hmm. um, but it is a very common issue. But we do know that COVID nineteen does increase your risk of of miscarriage or preterm uh, pre delivery, delivery or other fetal complications. Demise. It's it's we there's we more than once we've had to transfer a pregnant lady down to Sioux Falls from Brookings. Um, and so it, it's unfortunate that COVID it is uh, being hard on several pregnant women. Absolutely. Um, and so we do recommend getting vaccinated before, during, or after pregnancy. And, um, and then as far as being vegan, um, that's not necessarily uh, a drawback as long as she's smart about what she eats and, mm -hmm. and, and gets a good diet. A vegan diet can be an incredibly healthy diet. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or it can be Cheetos, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, a, or maybe not. I can't remember if Cheetos actually yeah. have cheese in them or not. Yeah. But yes, the, the vegan diet in and of itself, probably not. Mm -hmm. And the fasting, I think it would it'd potentially be stressful depending on how she did it. Right. But, um, you know, there's an awful lot of people that deliver healthy pregnancies in starvation mm -hmm. situations. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Either yeah. way, a miscarriage is a tragedy and the and blame is not helpful is and not helpful it may yeah. hurt none, none of these things may have affected this individual's pregnancy yeah. but we do know as a population that COVID-19 increases yeah. risk yes mm -hmm. and and that's just it you it may increase risk but you don't know in that particular no. setting it could have been a genetic factor which is frequently yeah. mm -hmm. the case a genetic or chromosomal issue mm -hmm. So blame is not helpful. Mm -mm. Um, Sorry so for your give, loss. Yes, yeah. love, love give, give her love and support. That's mm -hmm. what she needs. So, yeah. um, we have a 90-year-old woman who has a knee that's bone on bone. Should she get surgery, Kelly? Mm, another one of those. What, what is more <laughs> yes. precisely about um, this person's health? So I recently saw um, a patient of mine who is 95 came in with te pretty terrible hip pain from bone-on-bone -bone arthritis. Um, he is exceedingly healthy. Was running several just a few years ago, and he he's going to get a hip replacement. I would say most 90-year-olds, I would hesitate to recommend mm -hmm. a knee replacement surgery, um, but not all. It, it depends a lot on sort of the status quo of how functional and active this person is and their other health problems. Yeah, absolutely. Knee surgery isn't always the proverbial walk in the park. The rehab can be a little bit cumbersome and, and challenging, so I think it depends on a lot of factors. It depends on the state of this person's health in the first place, what their home life is like, if they're gonna be able to rehab at home or will have to go elsewhere for rehab. I mean, a lot of things go into this decision. So I think the bottom line answer is, it's not an automatic no. Right. Talk it over with your doctor. Yeah. And it's, it maybe. Yeah. I, I've had, you know, mm -hmm. orthopedic surgeries like that end up in complications and, and, and uh, not, you know, not be be something they wish they hadn't done. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had it where people were really glad they did it. Mm -hmm. I've had it where people tell me I woke up on the table and I could tell it was better. Yeah. Yeah. 
Right. So some of it depends on how much you're suffering beforehand. Yeah. And so. it also depends on that individual's sort of taste for risk and risk yep. and, and not risk. They're, they're just different. Uh, people are on different places in that spectrum, especially when it comes to elective surgery. So. We have a f quite a few more questions and not a lot more time. Okay. So speed round. Let, speed <laughs> round. Uh, here's another 90-year-old individual who has not been able to smell for the past few years. Should they be concerned? Kelly. I don't know that you should be concerned. It's unfortunate. It might affect that person's appetite and taste and enjoyment of life. Probably not a lot to be done about it in most cases. Um, so it, it can be checked out, but you wouldn't have to if it's not particularly bothersome. And if it's something that's been going on for a couple of years, it's probably not a sign of something terrible. It's no. Yeah. So, and not that it's any fun, but mm -hmm. um, we have a person who says, why is there so little information about Parkinson's disease? You know, I think it, you could find some good resources out there. Part, part, we've done shows where that was mm -hmm. the focus. Um, so if you go to prairiedocs.org, <laughs> you could. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it uh, it, it is a it, uh, you know it can be a, a, a devastating disease, um, but uh, it is something that there's some good research out there and some good uh, sites. Um, you know, I, if if someone is uh, has that rigid faces and and maybe a tremor and kind of a shuffle gait, uh, those are some of the things we look for. But uh, something to get checked out if you're concerned about it. Absolutely. Um, we have, uh, there was a question here that seems to have disappeared. It was a question about um, taking aspirin, baby aspirin, as you get older. Kelly. Mm -hmm. So as, as people get older, our recommendations have changed in the last even five years. Risk starts to outweigh reward for people on what I would call primary prevention aspirin, meaning taking an aspirin if you've never had a heart attack, stroke, or something along those lines with a vascular issue, just taking it for your health. Probably not um, very rewarding after age 70 or 75. So I've told a lot of my patients to stop their aspirin over the last few years. Some, some buy it and some don't, but yep. risk of GI bleeding just gets higher. Absolutely, mm -hmm. and other bleeding too, yep. but especially mm -hmm. that GI bleeding. So it's not that the aspirin is less effective at preventing heart attacks, it's that the risks go up yep. and that risk-benefit ratio that we were all yep. talk, we've been talking about through most of this show yep. just changes. Mm -hmm. So. Um, we have an individual, a 79-year-old gentleman, who is wondering about the best treatment for vertigo. Yeah, so if it's true benign positional vertigo, there's some um, movements, head movements, or laying on a bed and moving around that a therapist or your doctor or someone can help you do uh, to help get through it and get over it. Um, sometimes there's no exact cause and sometimes a treatment doesn't help. Um, there's some medications that can be helpful for dizziness, but if it's true benign positional vertigo, vertigo. there are some treatments. Vertigo is a symptom, mm -hmm. and the best treatment depends on the diagnosis, the disease. Yeah. So yeah. It, you can't really say what's the best treatment for the symptom without mm -hmm. knowing what's causing the disease. Here's another individual who wants to know what are the symptoms of sciatica and what can you do to help it? Kelly. Sciatica is really common. Most people will complain of pain in one side of their buttock that radiates down the back of their leg. Um, 
often it has to do with even muscular tightness, kind of inflammatory stuff. Maybe less often actually a true compression from, from, the, spine. The, from um, the spine. But most of our treatments are conservative. Most people will get better with pretty minimal treatment. I encourage people to get moving more, not less. Um, there's some stretches you can do. You could probably find a good guide online. Sometimes we'll do physical therapy. If you're someone who's able to tolerate anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen or naproxen, those are good initial treatments. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love physical therapy for sciatica mm -hmm. and all forms of back problems. Correct. That is great. <laughs> what are some safe treatments for toenail fungus? Andrew, that seems to be another. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe do the safest would be doing nothing. Um, <laughs> it, it, it is very common and you don't have to do anything. Um, and it can be very difficult to eradicate. Very difficult really. to treat. Very difficult even and if recurring. You, mm -hmm. Even if you did the medication, it's about 50% effective. And even then, it seems like it still might come back later sometime. Um, and so, and then it, and there's some risks. it's a long-term medication. Don't take it for you, two weeks. It's usually three, three or six months. months. Yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. it can risk and to the liver. And it takes another three to six months to see the benefits. So. Yeah. 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 You know, in general, uh, airing your feet out some and, and not wearing the same shoes all the time mm -hmm. and, and can be helpful some because funguses, they like moist environments. But... Uh, yeah, I, I don't recommend too often the painted treatments. I mean, I've had some people say put Vaseline on your toenails every night, and they did that, did the trick, or at least softened them up. But I don't know what you tell your patients too. Yeah, but. I, I tell them if it, if it doesn't bother you, it doesn't bother me. Absolutely. <laughs> um, we have a question from a gentleman who recently upped their Lipitor dose to 80 milligrams, and now they've got pain in their legs affecting mm -hmm. their walking. Mm -hmm. Kelly. So if I had a patient tell me that, I assume they probably increased it from a, a, a lower dose. dose. I would probably have them go back to the lower dose, in which case most, most of the time symptoms will resolve. Statin myalgias are common, but a lot of people even that have those, we are able to find a lower dose or a different medication that people can tolerate if they have a strong reason to take a statin. If this person's doctor recommended going up to 80 milligrams, they probably have a pretty compelling reason to be on a statin. So I wouldn't cut it or give up on the statin. I would call your doctor, probably go back to your prior low dose, or they may if you haven't tried a different variety of statin, try a different one. And everyday use of a statin can decrease the risk of side effect by 70%. Mm -hmm. um, so that'd be an alternative. I think at 80, I'd go down every day, 40. Day. But, right, but yeah. maybe if you were on a lower dose, maybe yep. try every other day. Yeah, yep, yep. So there's, there's some options, but it is a very common side effect and it is probably related. I think we have time for one more. The person's stool has been normal consistency, but orange for several weeks. Why? Hard right. to say without. <laughs> dietary? My guess yeah. would be dietary yeah. or meds. Right, yeah. right. Something that's going in has to have yeah. some orange pigment is what I would guess. Yes, yeah. that's, that's what I would yeah. guess too. So um, we have one more minute, guys. Um, right. Someone wanting to know about POTS syndrome and COVID. 
and COVID. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's a correlation there. there. Posture orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Mm -hmm. but go ahead. I've yeah. seen some dysautonomia or sort of dizziness, dizzy spells after COVID. Yeah, yeah. I think there's probably a correlation. Uh, affecting the way the, the nervous mm -hmm. system kind of controls those automatic things. There is a correlation. I know that they are doing a lot of research on long COVID sure. um, and yeah. treating it with, with the same sorts of steps that they use uh, to try to help people with POTS, and it is one of the things that they are seeing with long COVID syndrome. And I think that's about all the yeah. time we have, and I right, we did apologize. Our best. We did our best to get to all these questions. <laughs> um, the last one, kind of, somebody talks uh, just a little bit about long COVID and research, and that is certainly gonna be under underway. Mm -hmm. Right now, the system is just absolutely slammed and overwhelmed with taking care of the acutely sick COVID patients. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's certainly research being done into long COVID and hopefully we'll have a lot more information soon. Yeah. So, The winner of our drawing tonight is Clara from Eagle Butte. Thank you, Clara, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. The gift will be sent to you soon. And we'll be back after this. Good evening and welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc. We're coming to you live from the studios of South Dakota Public Television in Vermilion tonight. favorite parables describes the difference between heaven and hell. In both places, hungry people sit at tables laden with delicious food. In hell, people suffer and starve because they cannot eat with the long utensils provided. In heaven, people are happy and thrive because they use the utensils to feed each other. Many cultures and religions have some variation of this story. It illustrates a universal truth. We depend on each other. The current pandemic has starkly illustrated this interdependency, and it does not sit comfortably with our American culture of self-reliance and rugged individualism. As a physician, I depend on nurses, techs, therapists, and pharmacists. I depend on hospitalists to care for patients too sick to stay home. Hospitalists depend on intensivists to care for the sickest. Doctors depend on nurses providing hands-on care at the bedside, respiratory therapists adjusting ventilators, technicians operating machines which substitute for failing organs. And we all rely on those who sterilize equipment, launder sheets, clean rooms, repair machines, and prepare food. Two years into the COVID-19 pandemic, those of us who remain in healthcare are tired. We have enough beds and ventilators and protective equipment, but the human infrastructure is struggling to keep up. Unfortunately, we can't simply hire more people. Becoming a physician requires 11 plus years of higher education, 
Most care team members have at least two years of specialized schooling, and that's only the beginning. Learning is an ongoing process. Health systems may accelerate some of the administrative hurdles to get more people to the bedside, but we can't accelerate the time it takes to know what to do there. The upcoming tsunami of Omicron COVID patients threatens to swamp our healthcare systems. Not only are more people in need, but their needs are far more intense. In addition to COVID patients, people with other illnesses and victims of accidents still need healthcare services. As my colleagues and I anticipate the coming surge, we wonder how will we meet it? Who will die that with more support might have lived? Like the people in the parable, we need each other. Those who are eligible, please get your COVID shots and boosters. Vaccinated people are less likely to need a hospital bed and less likely to carry the virus to someone more vulnerable. Get your flu shot. Influenza infections are skyrocketing too. Wear a high quality mask in public to protect yourself and others and avoid spending long periods of time in crowds. We all depend on each other to stay safe. Like those diners in heaven, please use the available tools and do your part for the person across the table. And we had good news during that Dr. Cruz tested negative. Thank you <laughs> for volunteering your time to answer all the viewers' questions tonight. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating 20 seasons of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. Until next time, stay, stay healthy, healthy out there, people. people. endocrine system uses hormones to control your body's metabolism, energy level, reproduction, and growth and development. Hormones and the endocrine system. Next time, on call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season. Hello, my name is Dr. Ken Bartholomew from Peer, and I serve on the Healing Words Foundation Board. This year, we celebrate the 20th season of the Prairie Doc, created by my friend, the late Dr. Rick Holm. I watched as the Prairie Doc TV, radio, and newspaper programs were created, and now I watch as the legacy continues. Countless professionals donate their time to bring timely, trusted, truthful medical information free to the public without advertising spin or bias. As a native of Lemon, South Dakota, I realize how important this is, particularly to people in rural areas. You can help sustain the work of the Prairie Doc. Truthful, tested, timely information for 20 seasons. Please consider a charitable gift to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3 corporation. 
Go to prairiedot.org and donate today. And thank you. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flanger District Medical Society, Peer District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftle Communications.